You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And today, Ryan, we wanted to uh, sort of depart from what we usually do and talk about a subject that's been in the news a lot lately. So uh, the ImageNet competition, which is a large computer vision competition, was held. And Baidu scientists created multiple accounts in order to test their algorithms. And this was a huge deal. Yeah, it was it was a kind of a, a funny thing because it, it got a remarkable amount of attention, not just within the sort of machine learning community and computer vision community, but also in the sort of the broader media. And this shows says something really interesting and complicated about the popularity of machine learning right now, that information leakage from a test set on some problem like this would wind up in the New York Times. I don't know enough about the details of this to, to really speak to it, but I thought it might be uh, useful to sort of talk about why such things matter and why people might stress out over it and why other people might not stress out over it and to kind of understand what, what this is all about. I view this as a kind, of, a, a kind of scientific hygiene that's very important whenever you're trying to develop new machine learning algorithms. You want to make predictions on unseen data. That's what we're in the business of. And if you want to evaluate those, either yourself for doing, you know, for trying new ideas or debugging your code, or if you want to communicate a new idea for prediction to the broader community, then you need to somehow show how it performs on data that it's never seen before. Now, there's a couple different uh, levels at which this happens. And so we usually take data that, you know, some, some data set that we think is an interesting and hard problem, and we usually chop it up into like three different kinds of buckets. So we have typically what we call our training data. So these are the data that are sort of the, the data that we use maybe to set the weights in a neural network or define the support vectors in an SVM or various kinds of, uh, various kinds of sort of like low-level parameter setting. And then we often use a validation set, which is a different set of data. To, uh, we use a validation set to determine higher-level choices, things like hyperparameters or architectures. We might also use it to evaluate you know, things like kind of whether or not our code is running or various other kinds of things are kind of higher level choices. Sometimes we'll do this using a technique called cross-validation where you take your original training set and you, you split it up multiple times and, and try this um, and, and try different sort of training validation splits. And then there's something called a test set. And the test set is ultimately, I mean, the, the idea to me with the test set is that at the, uh, you don't use that to make any decisions at all. Um, about uh, the methods you're evaluating, and that that is how you report to the community how well you generalize, and that you don't look at those numbers when deciding, um, you know, when making any kind of decision about architecture and, and so on. Now, that's a dream that's a t difficult to achieve in practice because of publication biases and because of human nature. Papers that do better on the test set are going to tend to get in, and so there's a bias against papers that don't. And this and this bias doesn't even so much come in as you know in reviewers as it does in the incentive structure surrounding when to submit and, and things like that. So over time, test sets tend to get overfit, we believe, um, as as things go forward. And it seems likely that ImageNet is kind of starting to get into this regime where it becomes less interesting as people um, as people understand. You know, as, as people make their choices about what things to use based on how well things work on the test set. Nevertheless, this is kind of a complicated thing, and it, as a community, it's very difficult for us to for us to prevent this this kind of this kind of thing happening. You know, the difficulty though is that you worry that sometimes people, you know, due to professional interests and sometimes due to sort of innocence or lack of understanding of of protocol surrounding this, they let information from the test set leak into their choices about model selection or hyperparameters or various kinds of tuning. 
And that then, if that happens, then when, when a number gets reported in a paper, you don't really feel like you understand very well whether that it would do well if there was some other test set that it hadn't seen before. So you, you don't feel like that number is necessarily reflective of how well this procedure generalizes. So in competitions, you know, this can be delicate. So the issue here in the kind of the controversy surrounding ImageNet is that if you, um, you know, you're trying to win ImageNet, then getting to make, you know, getting to look at that test set and make more decisions based on it than other people causes more information to leak out and that that leak, that leaked information could inform the, um, the various decisions that, you know, that get made. And so we learn less from running such a competition. And since ultimately the objective is to learn about scientific, you know, to, to learn new methods uh, and figure out which methods work well, then this information leakage makes it very, can make it very difficult to compare things. So that's kind of what's going on within this. And uh, like I said, I don't know the details of this particular case, but the the larger issue and kind of why people are upset about this is really kind of just boils down to this hygiene question. You really don't want information leaking from the test set into the algorithms that, that people are producing. But this is also, as I say, why, like in some ways it's kind of like a fool's errand because over time, scientifically, I mean, as a, as a publication culture, we value things that do well. So you necessarily have to overfit as a community to the test set. And this isn't so different in my mind from things that happen in other, in other scientific communities where, you know, the, the classic kind of threshold for a statistically significant result is a p-value, you know, 0.05. And so all you need is kind of like 20 different people to have thought of running that experiment at some time and have run basically equivalent experiments. And then, you know, at some point, you, you, you know, there's some like non-trivial probability that someone will get a result that appears to be, you know, that passes this, this threshold for significance. But if you knew about all of the other failed experiments that didn't get published, then you would realize that in aggregate, this was expected. And in both cases, it's a kind of overfitting to the noise of particular procedures and particular ideas that um, individuals can try to refrain from, but that is very difficult as a sort of as a community to avoid. So, so that's what worries people. But then I think other, like I said, other observers have noted that the long trajectory of people beating up on this benchmark means that it is means that it's not meaningful. So it'll be interesting to see what happens, but that's kind of the larger, that's a larger picture is people worry about, people worry about this kind of like information leakage. So we'll have a link to the ImageNet competition website itself. And along with that, a variety of coverage on the topic. And as always, Neil Lawrence has been writing very eloquently about this. And we'll have a link to a couple of his recent articles on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question is about the size of data that we feed to our algorithms. Hi, my name is Dan. I'm a PhD student studying programming languages. So my question is, um, it seems to me that there's a trend in machine learning to study deep learning and essentially models that learn on large amounts of data. Do you think there will be a trend in the future or a time in the near future where um, we study models that work and consume only small amounts of data and try to make inferences from that? Thanks for the question, Dan. You know, it's a little bit funny because, of course, most of the time that we've been doing machine learning as computer scientists without really a lot of computing power has involved really small data sets. And it's only been relatively recently that has been interesting and possible to explore sort of like larger, larger data sets. And our definition of what makes a big 
data set is something that evolves, evolves pretty rapidly um, based on, on hardware requirements and, and so on. Um, and I should say also that deep learning isn't the only area that cares about, about big data. There's a lot of different areas, um, that a lot of different subfields, and of course statistics, and, and uh, a lot of people care about dealing with large data sets. The small data kind of question is, I think, as you observe, is going to be increasingly important because uh, going forward, there's going to be more and more devices that are collecting data about ourselves, so things like Fitbits and so on, and also lots of uh, you know lots of data from the so-called sort of Internet of Things, so devices that are collecting information from sort of everything all the time. And these are often going to have very sparse data from a particular individual, and yet we'd like them to be able to adapt to your behavior, for which it just doesn't have that many examples, and that sort of doesn't have that long of a history. I, I think as, as you were sort of getting at, the key to dealing with the situation is going to be um, building in prior knowledge. And this might be in the way that we construct our architectures, or and it may be Bayesian modeling type ideas. And I think different situations demand different philosophical approaches to that. You know, one approach that, for example, you see in areas like astronomy is to say, well, I um, don't have that much data, but I do know a lot about physics. So rather than building a kind of very generic model, I'm going to build a model that uh, that knows a lot about, um, you know, the way that the physics of stars and, you know, uh, Planck's law and things like this. So then what you wind up with is a little bit of data, but a fairly limited model space that is sort of only physically realistic things. And then the other approach is to treat little data, collections of little data problems as themselves as being sort of big data problems. And this is kind of what hierarchical modeling is all about. So building graphical models where I say that, okay, I only have a little bit of data about each of a large population of individuals, but I think that the sort of um, you know, model space that all of these individuals might inhabit is relatively common between the individuals. And so then you can sort of add layers that try to find shared structure across all of these, say, people or devices or whatever it is. And so that winds up kind of discovering the physics of these people in a sense and being strong prior such that when you only have limited data from some new person, you can make a pretty good estimate sort of right out of the gate. So I think it is going to be important as we wind up with small amounts of data about a lot of different things. And our approach to that is going to, is going to be necessarily problem dependent, but I'm optimistic that we can find in ways to share structure across lots of these different kinds of problems and, um, and do well even in the presence of only a little bit of information. Thanks for your question, Dan. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, you can reach us via Twitter at TLKNGMCHNS or email thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Dr. Claudia Perlick, and she's the chief scientist at Distillery, where she focuses on using machine learning in digital advertising. And we got a chance to sit down with her at the Rework conference that was held here in Boston a couple of weeks ago. We asked Claudia the same question we start everyone with. How did you get where you are? So I grew up originally in East Germany, and I was always pretty good at math, but not really excited about it. So when I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do with my life, my dad suggested, well, why don't you do computer science? Uh, people who are good in math typically uh, do very well there, and you can always decide later because computers will be used everywhere. And he was very right with that projection. 
So I studied computer science in uh, Darmstadt, Germany, and then I came as an exchange student for nine months to Boulder, Colorado, and serendipitously ran into a professor teaching a course on artificial neural networks who actually was German. And so I signed up and said, hey, that sounds cool. I like biology too, so why not? And I got hooked at data ever since. So I went back to Germany, finished my German degree, and then applied for PhD programs in computer science. And I reached out to this professor from Boulder and asked him um, if he was willing to write me a recommendation letter. And he said, well, why don't you apply here? Because he, meanwhile, had moved to Stern NYU in the business school in the information systems department. And I told him, well, I know nothing about business. And his reply was, well, neither do I. <laughs> so why don't you come? I said, well, good question. Why wouldn't I go to New York and uh, study at a business school? So my, my background is a bit uh, different because I have done machine learning in very applied settings from the very beginning. Not so much on the theory and algorithmic side, but much more interested what kind of problems can you solve with them and what does it take to tinker a little bit to make these things um, in the end be useful. After I graduated, I went to IBM Research, the Watson Lab, and spent a good six years there in the predictive modeling group. And then finally, about five years ago, I was approached, it wasn't really even an interview, it was more like a lunch, um, with a group of people who had worked with my PhD advisor. And apparently he had convinced them that uh, some of the work I did for my PhD might come in handy. So they had used my algorithms in this new startup in digital advertising, which I never anticipated myself ending up uh, working on. And so now I'm chief scientist of uh, distillery using very large scale machine learning in an automated fashion to decide anything from who to target, in what sites, uh, how much we should bid for it, measuring causal impact, um, fraud detection, all of the little analytical problems around it. So you've you've been um, you've won a number of very impressive data competitions <laughs> on, on everything from from Netflix viewing to to breast cancer. Um, talk a little bit about how the data set you're you're presented with might change your approach to the questions you're trying to answer. So I was avoiding this in my little background story, but yes, indeed, I. Uh have always been very competitive, and once I got into the field of machine learning, um, with great pleasure I discovered that they had these competitions where you're given a data set when you can build the best possible model, and then there is a second data set that is very similar, but they don't tell you the answer. You have to submit the answers, and then they measure who got the closest. And as you say, they come from all kinds of different areas, from genomic data, breast cancer, to movie viewing behavior. And what the dirty little secret is that I have pretty much won all of them because I find something that is wrong with the data. Hmm. So it doesn't change my approach as much as I like to play around and get really intimately familiar with the data set and its properties. And often I find something that probably shouldn't be there and ultimately can be exploited. Now, in real applications that not what you want to do, but the fact that you can actually find them because they typically um, create havoc in the outcome, not because the algorithms do the wrong thing, but because particular something is misleading. So in the breast cancer example that you mentioned, 
we built the most predictive model, not because we understood medicine, um, but because we realized that the patient identifier, which was just a random number, was by far the most predictive feature. (laughs) (laughs) So the story here is they compiled the data set from different sources, and some of them were screening centers and other were treatment centers. So the what's so-called base rate, the natural percentage of the population that was affected was very different, and you could back this out from the patient identifier. (laughs) What you should have done, you should have told me that they came from different places, and you should probably have modeled this explicitly and not through the back door. But um, that's just one of the numerous examples where we found issues in data sets that ultimately helped us win competitions not really the right thing, again, for applications, but very important skill if you want to build a good model because you need to find these things that are wrong with your data first. Can you talk a little bit about your process for finding these kinds of things? I mean, or or just for understanding data more generally? I think everybody in this field has a very kind of personal attitude towards how to get up close and personal with a data set. And some people like visualizations and look at plots. Um, I personally run it, I literally look at the screen. It looks like the matrix. You have like these things flashing down. And what is important here, what works very well for me, is a certain expectation or intuition what you should be seeing. Things shouldn't be sorted, for instance. If something is sorted and it wasn't meant to be sorted, then that might be an issue to start with. Other things that should be numeric, but you see certain values coming over and over and over again, 33759, for no apparent reason whatsoever, typically means somebody replaced a missing value with the average or the median, and that was probably not the right thing to do either. So I'm very close to the original having columns run over my screen. I also am very interested in understanding why models behaving a certain way. It is very rarely the case that a nearest neighbor performs better than some other methodology. If it does, there's something very interesting about this data set or the setup. In particular, you have duplicates in there. That's why the nearest neighbor does very well, which you shouldn't have had in the first place. So it's a collection of tools uh, and experiences that, that I have made over the years, but it's pretty rudimentary. There is no grand theory behind it, nor a recommended tool set. You've been quoted on Twitter as saying there's no such thing as clean or dirty data, just data you don't understand. So, <laughs> so I hope that's actually attributable to you because people are saying it's yours. It, it is, in fact, yes. Okay. Uh, I, I'll take the blame for this. <laughs> I think it's very true when you look at data to realize that you make assumptions about it. And in advertising, for instance, we record clicks. There are a number of assumptions about it. The most common one is somebody was interested in the product and clicked on the ad. Turned out most of the time, maybe somebody clicked on the ad, but the cousin wasn't because he was interested in the product, but because he was using the flashlight app and it was dark. Or because they forgot their reading glasses, or more malicious, somebody is faking, creating the technical equivalent of a click But you see, for instance, the click coming from China, whereas you know you delivered the ad in the US. Now, in the end, it's the understanding that technically the event happened. There's no doubt on that side. 
it's your interpretation and the decision of what to then do with that event that matters. And in that sense, I don't believe in clean data. It often is your understanding of what the context of the event is that was recorded there. And I strongly dislike it if somebody tries to clean up data for me, because often that creates more noise or problems um, than I started with. I can't backwards engineer what has happened in the past. And so that's the context in which I said that, because I object to the notion of cleaning data, and then everything will be fine. Yeah, it removes the actual context in which it happened. For me, it's dead data. It's, it lost its soul. Once you start trying to format it into a consistent way, and you lose, for instance, the fact that there were four different data sources for that cancer data set, I'm sure in the original non-normalized data set, it was very easy to see. It just, I had to backwards engineer that. That's a perfect example where in the end, what you're left with is much less useful than the original one. So you work, um, you work in advertising now, applying machine learning to, to advertising. Talk a little bit about what tools you're using and, and what your goals are. When I joined the company about five years ago, the core quest, so to say, was can we truly find people to whom this product is relevant? And not just go with what's called retargeting, where you once look at a refrigerator and the damn thing follows you around online for the next three <laughs> weeks. Um, but can we predict who might indeed be just now start to think about it? And use much more reliable information. So rather than having third-party data providers tell you that this is a middle-aged soccer mom that is currently a credit card intender, um, go back to the kind of original information. Look at what people do, the choices they make, the blogs they read, and use predictive modeling from there to have a very product specific. So every campaign that we uh, work with, we first identify what is the exact product you're advertising, and then there is a model for this specific product. And so the Citibank credit card model will be different from the Amex one because they are derived from their original um, customers. And then these predictive models really just see how does your behavior online, all the digital um, traces that you leave behind, help me to predict who else might be in the market for that very specific product. And this still today is the core objective. Um, what I find really fascinating is how can you use predictive models to um, estimate the impact that ads have on people, if any. Can you actually predict which ad is more effective on a specific person? Because even if we're all in the market for refrigerators, we might respond very differently to imagery. So these side efforts that may not be primarily um, business relevant, but I think are very interesting in terms of developing methodologies that then can be maybe transferred back into medicine and other areas as we learn more about how to use data to look at these very complicated concepts like causality, I do hope that they will become more mainstream usable in the future in many other areas and not just advertising. So what do you think is the next step that needs to take place in order to allow for that transference? That's a very challenging question, and I think it depends very much on the domain you're in. In advertising specifically, we are struggling 
more with the incentive structures of the industry than the actual data. Data is incredibly rich in advertising, for the better and the worse, and there are certainly people who are worried about that. If you move on to medicine, you are really facing data collection problems and standardization that is not available. You are facing legal concerns as to what extent you can pool this data and use it. Do you need to think about privacy preserving, data mining? So I think every field has its own challenges. In medicine, we have established um, experimentation as a way of answering certain questions. In education, we don't really have the freedom to run experiments at all. Maybe this is a good thing. Um, but again, the data records in education are even less standardized than in medicine. So every field has its own set of complications. And what I find interesting is, as compared to some gold standard of what is possible, what are the most pressing parts of that specific field that need working on first in order to get to that next level where we can be more effective. One of the, uh, one of the refrains that you often hear as an academic when you talk to people in the industry is that there's a kind of a tension in which, uh, in w in which academics kind of like to build fancy models, um, but then in industry it almost always turns out that some very, very, very simple models work very well doing most of what you actually, what you actually need. Um, the uh, you know the kind of the thing is you know we build a big deep neural network to solve some problem but actually logistic regression would do just fine. Uh, how does this map onto your experience? It sounds like you're doing some pretty complicated modeling, but maybe it's just that each one of these is its own logistic regression model. Can you speak a little bit about this? I'm I'm very happy to pick this up. So my personal journey, my data journey, started with artificial neural networks way back when they were the rage the first time and then soon thereafter uh, <coughs> fell out of favor. When I started my PhD, we were all working on decision trees because right now they were the next uh, generation of um, interesting algorithms that didn't have some of the problems of neural networks but still uh, were far beyond what statisticians typically would be working with. And over time, slowly to truly, I have indeed come to embrace simpler models because it's much easier for me to beef up a simple model deliberately than to control the full complexity of the much more elaborate algorithms. So my personal journey, yes, I went from very complicated to pretty simple. I won all of my data mining competitions with logistic regression in the end. Um, I think there's a separate question uh, as to what is the true value. And I see, for instance, the kind of problems we can solve today with methods like deep learning, you can't tackle with logistic regression. So there is clearly um, huge advantage and uh, a step forward in evolution that we've seen. But not all problems are deep learning problems. I think that's the other side of the equation. Um, our company right now, we build exclusively simpler models, so logistic regression, but in a few million dimensions. So it's a question how simple you really consider these things at the end of the day. But the technology itself um, is basically a new uh, reinvented version of what people used already 40, 50 years ago, except that we now can use the same computing power that is fueling um, deep learning at the end of the day to build these very high dimensional, but not as sophisticated uh, models. You know, distillery is is sort of all about predicting the ways that people interact with interact with mm -hmm. advertisements. Um, 
the uh, but it seems like there's a kind of an arms race with uh, with ad blocking software that has its own kind of often machine learning type intelligence built yep. in. How are the how are the dynamics of that sort of playing out over time? That's a very interesting consideration that I'm asked very often when I give these talks in non-industry conferences. It turns out in advertising, nobody cares. That's a question that nobody ever asks. We are care. We are worried about viewability, and maybe now we're thinking about the fact that there are bots, and a little bit on the sidelines is the question: the question how reliable um, geographical location data actually are. But nobody cares whether or not you use an ad blocker because, in the end, my understanding is. Nobody knows that you do, and as far as I'm concerned, I delivered the ad. As far as the brand is concerned, you saw it, and um, that is that. Maybe it will be uh, considered in the context of viewability, but it turns out I think the percentage of people actually using ad blockers is not nearly as large as the percentage of not viewable ads that uh, die quietly at the bottom of the page and you never scroll to. So in the end, I think it's the least of the concerns of the industry right now, ad blocking software, um, while having been around for a long time, people have made peace with the fact that some ads uh, will be good to waste, but it's a small enough percentage that uh, it's not considered a major problem. Interesting. Okay, I didn't realize that. You know, from looking at your webpage, it looks like you still have kind of a foot in academia, that you have an affiliation with NYU. Uh, and I was just curious how, how that set up and how how that set up and how you find uh, how you find that to, to work mm -hmm. out. Do you advise PhD students? Um, so your observation is very uh, very true. I have never quite been able to make up my mind whether I preferred academia uh, or industry. I ended up somewhat accidentally in a business school, and likewise. IBM Research was my only industry position that I applied to. I applied to numerous um, academic uh, positions. So I have a lot of joy and good memories of academia. I like the intellectual environment. I'm very good friends with my advisors and the people I learned from, my mentors. And I personally truly enjoy the teaching experience when you can share off some of the pitfalls you have been through and maybe kickstart somebody else's learning and uh, enable them to avoid some of these. So it's almost, um, to me, to stay true to my sources and what I enjoyed doing very much during my PhD, but it's also a way of sharing the insights I can derive in a very data-rich and free field like advertising um, and bring this to bear maybe through the next generation in, in many different other areas and application domains. Fun. So how often do you do you teach? So I'm still, um, an, officially I'm an adjunct at NYU and typically I'm trying to teach only one semester a year. That doesn't work out very well these days. I think it's more <laughs> like two semesters uh, that I have a class. Um, it is a uh, MBA class on data mining for business intelligence, and it's not so much about teaching you the inner workings of logistic aggression, because if you want to, there are amazing online resources out there, and I know you, you talk to Andrew, so there's always something you can go if you want to learn that. It is more about reaching the managerial side of things that has to decide 
whether at all they need to do something with their data, and if so, how should they go about building a data science team? And once somebody comes back with a proposal, is this any good? Should we really go down that route? So enabling them to understand the vocabulary that by now is uh, common in data science and being able to evaluate what has been done, what's proposed to be done, and also have a lot of patience when they say, well, we have to work harder on the data set because there is still something not right with it. So they all have to take uh, to do a project and that's the one time they actually have to get somewhat hands-on with it. So again, the focus is more of an experience and critical thinking about data science, not so much me trying to make more data science uh, skilled people but people who can potentially collaborate with them, explain what's necessary to know about the domain, or potentially manage data scientists. Nice. That's, that sounds like something we yeah, sort of need more of. Yeah, I think there's a huge call for that, especially in the business world, to explore the internal data that people are creating just in mm -hmm. the course of doing their business. So how... What do you find are the most common questions of people who have suddenly discovered that just through being in operation for 15 years, they have a data set, but now what, what do they do with it? So I typically see two types of problems arising. One is the realization that just because you bought big data technology, um, nothing really has gotten any, any better. And I would say there the understanding has to be you always have to start, if you want to have any impact, and academic is a, is a knowledge is a separate route, but if you actually want to have an impact, you have to start thinking about what are decisions you can actually make. What are the things you can change? What are the actions you can take? Because otherwise the danger becomes you're just getting lost in this incredible amount of data. If just because you discovered data in your basement, you start uh, on a little quest to go and search for insights, it will take months off your plate, and it is very unlikely that you will be able to find anything that then turns into what they all call actionable insights. I try to challenge people to flip it around and say, okay, what are the decisions you think you could be doing better if you just had some piece of information. And then let's figure out if we can find you that piece of information, if we can predict it for you. Maybe it's already somewhere there. Maybe it's a special um, algorithmic tool that can provide that to you. But unless you tell me exactly what you're going to do with the piece of information, I'm actually very reluctant to hand it over. And that shift in focus, that's also some of the things I'm, I'm trying to teach, often helps not so much with clarity about the data in your basement, because that is still a problem, but often people get a much better understanding of how their organization is actually working, and that by itself is a good exercise. And then bringing the data back to the table, the appreciation of what now is possible is much more um, elating than just firing a set of slides with some things that you have found in your data and everybody's leaving the room as, that was great and the visual looked amazing, but what are we doing now? Right, right. So, so I bet when you teach your class and you talk about this idea of actionable insights versus <laughs> ambiguous insights, I bet you have some great stories to tell. What's your favorite story? Um, great stories on actionable insights. 
or uh, not actionable ones? Either way. Like, Either way. <laughs> I'm so, guessing you have some, a lot of both. <laughs> um, I actually want to, to bring up an example from um, Kohavi's work, uh, who uh, was at Amazon at the time, where he looked at data where they tried to do some um, cross-selling. They wanted to sell more jewelry because, man, the profit margin on jewelry, really nice. So can we figure out who's actually buying jewelry? And they went off and they came back and the, um, the insight is people who buy nothing else buy jewelry. And that is in fact true. Absolutely. The people are most likely to buy jewelry are those who buy nothing else. Because in order to be in the Amazon CRM system, you must have had bought something. So everybody who bought nothing in any of the other product categories, by definition, must have bought jewelry. It is an artifact of asking the wrong question. The question is really, who will be most likely in the future to buy jewelry? At which point you have to correctly temporarily align it, and then you can think about, if you knew that, what would you do? And so the question about the future, really, if you, if you pose it back to the action is, well, maybe we want to show them a special offer, right? So now we only know what we know until the past. And then time becomes much more concrete, a constraint, and people understand of what they should be doing. So you can find very interesting. Uh, the other one they found that big spenders all had free shipping. <laughs> and so you can go through about a hundred of them. At some point, somebody will very uh, walk away unnerved and say, guys, you only told me what I knew already. None of this is relevant, coming back to the causation and uh, correlation. And often you can avoid it if you were just clearer on what you really wanted me to find in there. So these were two of them that I'm very happy to attribute to Ronnie Kohavi. Claudia Perlick, she is the chief scientist at Distillery. And I think she's got some really fascinating things to say, not only about machine learning and advertising, but also about data competitions. Yeah, you know, I, I have to say, I really love the way you get the sense that she sort of lives and breathes the data and is really passionate about it. And what she talked about, I think, really relates interestingly to um, to the stuff we talked about earlier in the episode about the hygiene of data, mm -hmm. how she's, uh, you know, had some really interesting successes in showing that some of the some of the, uh, the data associated with different competitions is not hygienic and that they've revealed information about the test set uh, or the labels based on silly things like like ID numbers. And it just shows how, how you know, deep of a dive she takes on these problems when she studies them. Yeah, really fascinating to listen to her talk. So that's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in to us next time. Mm -hmm.